The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 30, of Church Censures, Paragraph 1 and 2. The Lord Jesus, as King and Head of his Church, hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers, distinct from the civil magistrate. Paragraph 2. To these officers, the keys of the Kingdom of Heaven are committed, by virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners, by the ministry of the gospel, and by absolution from censures, as occasion shall require. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 89 of This We Confess. And today we leave the sacraments in our rearview mirror, and open chapter 30 of Church Censures. What are Church Censures? Well, I'm not surprised if you're asking that question. When we speak about Church Censures, we are talking about Church Discipline, which is certainly a little practiced and rarely accepted art in the modern Church. What do we mean by Church Discipline? Well, think first of all of your local gym, or your local school, or even your local shop. All of these bodies will have a standard of behaviour that you are required to follow. If you go to a shop today, you'll probably see a sign urging you to wear a mask or another sign that says, Shoplifters will be prosecuted. At your local school, your child is required to arrive on time and stay in class until the end of the day. They must respect their teacher and putting another child in a headlock is certainly frowned upon. And at your gym, you must clean the equipment after you use it, and you shouldn't bring a lunchbox of food to enjoy between sets. Every organisation in your life has rules, regulations and standards that you are to follow, and there are certainly repercussions if you fail to do so. The church is no different in this regard. The Westminster Divines begin by telling us that Christ is the King and Head of his Church. There is no other. It is right and good and proper to say that Jesus is the sole King and Head of his Church. Neither the Queen in London or the Pope in Rome can be considered to be the Head of the Church of Jesus Christ. And Paul would remind the Ephesian elders for why this is the case. Paul would say in Acts 20 and verse 28, that the elders were to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. How could the queen be the head of the church or the pope in Rome? 
Neither of them owned the church. Neither of them died for the church or shed their blood for the church. Jesus is the sole king and head of the church, for he is the one who gave himself up for her. Paul would say exactly this when he is speaking to husbands in Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And indeed, in Isaiah's famous passage in chapter 9 of his prophecy, we hear this about Christ. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Jesus is the head of the church, because only Jesus died for the church. He has the right to govern and rule his church in whatever manner he pleases. And so how does Christ rule and govern his church? Paragraph 1 today tells us that Jesus appointed a government in the hand of church officers that is distinct from the civil magistrate. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And then in Ephesians 4 and verse 11 and 12, Paul says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Okay, let's break that down. In every local fellowship, there will be appointed church officers. The scriptures describe the offices in a local church as those of elders and deacons. The elders concern themselves with the spiritual oversight of the fellowship, and the deacons are to take care of the practical needs of the local church. Elders and deacons are distinct from the civil magistrate. In other words, your elders have no business or authority in the courts or justice system of our nation. In the same way, the civil authorities have no business meddling in the spiritual affairs of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now that is not to say that the Church is immune from prosecution if it engages in criminality, but it simply says that the state has no business in the spiritual life of a congregation. The state cannot and should not dictate what is preached in the local church. The state cannot and should not dictate who can serve as leaders and elders in the local church. The government of the local church is distinct from that of the civil magistrate. So in summary, the church belongs to Christ, and in the church he has established a government distinct and separate from the civil authorities. Before we consider then what an elder should do, let's think briefly about what he should look like. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul would give a description of an elder. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer 
must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall in disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then in 1 Peter 5, Peter also describes the elder. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So it is clear from these passages that the role of elder is a vital one in any local church, and the elder himself must be a saved man who displays certain characteristics. This is of such importance because to the elders of the local church, Christ has given the keys to the kingdom of God. We see this in paragraph 2 of chapter 30. To these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed, by virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners, by the ministry of the gospel, and by absolution from censures, as occasion shall require. And so, according to the Westminster Divines, the keys of the kingdom have been entrusted to the elders of a local church. What are these keys? Well, we find the answer in Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13 states, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The Apostle Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, 
And as a play on his name, which means rock, Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The church is not built on Peter. We do not look to Peter as the first of the popes, and today the popes alone hold the keys of the kingdom. Instead, the church is built on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so to the apostles, Christ gave the keys of the kingdom. If you imagine, therefore, a door to the kingdom of God, the apostles were given the keys to the door. Whatever they bound on earth would be bound in heaven, and whatever they loosed would be loosed in heaven. And so at this point we remind ourselves that the office of the apostle has ceased. There is no longer anyone in the church today who meets the requirements of the apostle. The apostle was a foundational office, a foundational ministry, and the church is built on that foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So where are the keys of the kingdom today? In the government that Christ has placed in his church. The elders of a local church hold the keys of the kingdom today. And what are these keys? The preaching of the word and church discipline. It is exactly this that the divines make clear in paragraph 2. To the officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed. And these keys enable them to retain and remit sins, to shut the kingdom against the impenitent, that is, the individual who will not repent, both by the word and censures, and also to open the kingdom to those who are repentant. As the gospel is proclaimed in a church, the door to glory is open to all who will believe. If we receive Christ by faith, then we walk through the door that has been opened by the right preaching of God's word. And in this way, the offices of a local church have the power to open the door and to see sins remitted to those who are penitent. And so we declare sins forgiven if an individual will repent. If, however, we refuse the kind invitation, the door is closed to us and we bring judgment upon ourselves by the rejection of Christ. And in this way, the door to salvation is closed. The sins of the impenitent are retained. And so we declare the punishment for sin if an individual refuses to repent. The preaching of the gospel is one of the keys to the kingdom. But the other, the Westminster divines tell us, is church censures. And we see something of this in Matthew 18. Verse 15 onwards states, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. If an unrepentant individual continually refuses to listen, 
then that individual is to be censured or disciplined. Jesus says that they are to be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector, or in other words, they are to be seen as unclean and sinful. Now, the goal here isn't to destroy the individual, but to see them brought back into the fellowship and restored. Paul shows us a little glimpse of this in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5 to 8. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So even though in 2 Corinthians, Paul shows us that he has been badly mistreated, he urges the Corinthians to forgive the repentant wrongdoer. He has been punished by the majority and would appear from Paul's words to have been filled with sorrow. Such an individual, says Paul and the Westminster Divines, should receive absolution from church censures. They should be forgiven. Unfortunately, none of this is straightforward today. The days are gone that the average Christian would have received the censure of his church with a serious attitude. All too often today, any church censure is received with arrogance and pride. The individual in question tends either to cause as much trouble as he wishes, or he upsticks and walks away to another church, full of self-justification and a refusal to repent. And equally, my own denomination is filled with elders who do not want anything to do with the dirty work of church censures. It is a difficult business, and therefore, we would rather not touch it. May the Lord forgive us. Christ loved the church, that he died for her. He instituted a government in his church, and to that government he entrusted the keys to his kingdom. All of this is plainly true from the pages of God's word, and believed by Reformed Christians around the world. Therefore, may we take seriously the issue of church discipline, and may we hear the word of God once again. To the elder, the Lord says in Acts 20 and verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And to the church member, the Lord says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and Hebrews 13, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Brothers and sisters, none of this is easy, but it is expected by our Lord. We would never dream of causing difficulty in our local gym. Our behaviour at the golf club is above reproach. And when our doctor gives us difficult advice, we listen. The church is not below such groups, but the church is the bride of Christ. And therefore, it should receive our full attention and our most reverent respect. And so whether we are 
an elder, a deacon, or a church member, may our prayer for ourselves and our local church closely resemble Ephesians 4 and verses 11 to 16. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As always, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. Who is the sole king and head of the church? Question 2. What has Christ appointed in his church? Question 3. What do you understand by the government of the church being distinct from the civil magistrate? Question 4. What are the two keys of the kingdom entrusted to the government of a local church? And question 5. The goal of church censures is to destroy the unrepentant individual. Do you agree or disagree with this statement? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn, and until next time, this we confess. Music